0: Hello, and welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should tune into today's episode. Google teams up with Coinbase to start taking payments in cryptocurrencies. We'll discuss what this means for the crypto space. Plus, we'll do a deep dive into the world of DeFi amidst another large hack. Mona Elisa from AvantGarde Finance will join us live. I'm Sarah Klein. Ash Bennington is with me. How are you doing, Ash?
1: Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Real Vision.
0: Thank you. It's nice to be here. Don't forget to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto, everyone, it's free. If you're watching on YouTube, smash the like button, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you don't miss when we go live. Let's jump right into the latest price action. Bitcoin has stabilized around $19,000. It's virtually flat on a 24-hour basis, but has been on a rather downward trajectory over the past few days. The relative stability compared to equities is notable, though. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq had a volatile session Tuesday. Bitfinex analysts told CoinDesk last week they saw the biggest outflows of Bitcoin from exchanges in three months. They say that's a bullish sign, as it indicates holders have little intention of selling soon. However, other analysts point to an ongoing bearish sentiment. Ash, how's Ethereum holding up?
1: Ethereum is slightly, slightly more higher than Bitcoin right now on a percentage basis. Over the last 24 hours, it's up about five, it's up about basically half a percent, let's call it. It's trading now around the 1300 mark. Investors are also awaiting the release of the last FOMC minutes, that's the U.S., Federal Reserve Open Market Committee minutes that can shed light on the officials thinking about future rate hikes. That's the theory, at least. Those minutes come out in about two hours. Tomorrow at 8.30 in the morning, we get the CPI number for September here in the U.S. It's been running hot lately, obviously. Last month's August print coming in at about 8.3% on a year-over-year basis, Sarah.
0: That is hot. We're also looking at MNGO, the governance token of the DeFi platform Mango. It went through an unusual spike in price before tumbling. We'll explain what happened a little later in the show. But first, let's look at our top story. Google has announced a partnership with Coinbase that will see Google start taking crypto payments. From early next year, some Web3 clients will be able to pay for Google's cloud services and digital currencies. The company will rely on Coinbase Commerce to facilitate it. Coinbase Commerce supports 10 cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin and Apecoin. While the initial number of clients will be limited, Google Cloud's head of product told CNBC many more will be allowed in the future. Coinbase will get a cut from the transactions, and the company will move some of its services from Amazon to Google. Ash, this is a big deal. What do you make of it?
1: So here's my thesis, antithesis, synthesis on this story. On the surface, it's positive news for the space. Uh, Google, obviously a Web2 giant partnering with Coinbase, a Web3 giant. On the other hand, who wants to pay for cloud services with Bitcoin? We've talked about this here on this show before, the idea that the medium of exchange function uh, sort of militating against the store of value function, why would you want to spend something that was going to go up in price in your view if you were bullish on it? Um, but look, cynicism aside, I think this is really good news for the space. This is about the fundamental back-end integration that needs to take place between web 2.0 and web 3.0, the, you know, so- software as a service models that have been so successful for the Silicon Valley giants like Google and Amazon and Apple sort of marrying the web three version of all of that, uh, as represented here by Coinbase. So look, I think it's a positive story for the space, no question about it, Sarah.
0: Great, thank you, Ash. Google is looking to, at using Coinbase Prime, which is its custody and trading service for institutions. Speaking of custody, that market is also heating up, which brings us to our next story. The oldest US bank and the world's largest custodian, Bank of New York Mellon, or BNY Mellon, has announced it will start holding its clients' crypto. The bank has won the approval of New York's financial regulator to start safeguarding Bitcoin and Ether from this week. The Wall Street Journal says BNY Mellon becomes the first large U.S. bank to safeguard digital assets alongside traditional assets on the same platform. As of June 30th, BNY Mellon had $43 trillion in assets under custody and or administration. Ash, when it comes to custody, this is as big as it gets. How would this work for crypto,
1: though? Oh, that's absolutely right, Sarah. This is uh, sort of bleeding edge technology with uh, the oldest bank in the United States, uh, fund- founded by Alexander Hamilton, to give you an idea of how old this bank is. You know, We've talked about this on this show before. In its simplest form, uh, custody is about people, how people own and store their assets, whether it's digital assets like cryptocurrency on the one hand or stocks and bonds on the other. BNY Mellon is, as you said, an absolute giant in the space. They're number one in the custody space. But what I think people in traditional finance already know about Bank of of New York Mellon is that the gap between number one and number two uh, is considerable. We've actually had BNY Mellon executives on Real Vision before. I've spoken with Roman Regelman, who runs asset servicing at BNY Mellon, which is the the general umbrella under which all this falls. You know, in some way, Sarah, I would say this is quite similar to the last story that we did, uh, strangely enough, with Google uh, and Coinbase. This is about integration. Of the space. This is uh, the sort of building the underlying plumbing of the space. It may not be sort of the sexiest story, but this is the Mm -hmm. kind of thing that needs to happen. When people, uh, you speak to people in the traditional finance world, uh, they will say things like, well, you know, we've got to build the plumbing in the system. This is exactly the type of plumbing that they're talking about. Stories like this are important. Uh, They may not be very glamorous, but this is really what builds an ecosystem for the future.
0: And do you think there's a reason why these moves between Google and And Melon, do you think they're coming during the bear market for a reason or during the crypto winter for a reason?
1: Well, I think it may be more of an unmasking effect that we notice Mm -hmm. these stories more during bear markets because there's not a lot of go-go sort of positive stories to talk about in terms of price action. Uh, But look, the the reality is, I think precisely to your point, that when you have bear markets, uh, and in, in a technology uh, that is something that people believe in the building continues even during the bear markets even when you see the price down on bitcoin now about 70 percent from the november 2021 highs you know that reminds me and i, I know i'm showing my age here but was when i was the, one of the young kids on wall street you know we saw this happen uh, during the dot-com bust phase after the the 2000 price collapse on the NASDAQ, you know, the internet did not go away. Uh, the building continued behind the scenes. The valuations were less lofty. Uh, the parties were not nearly as fun, unfortunately. But the reality is uh, that when you have a technology that people believe in, the building behind the scenes continues, Sarah.
0: Thanks for that insight. It's It's healthy, and it does feel like a healthy signal for the space. Um, Let's move on to a developing story about another big DeFi hack. Solana-based platform Mango has confirmed on Twitter, a hacker used an exploit to drain approximately $100 million worth of tokens. Mango says that's effectively all of its liquidity. Ash, another day, another DeFi hack, what else do we know?
1: Yeah, so Mango alleges that the attacker carried out an Oracle price manipulation. Oracles connect blockchains to external systems, thereby enabling smart contracts to execute based on inputs and outputs from off-chain. The hacker manipulated the price of the token, according to Mango, to take outsized loans with Mango as collateral. Coindesk reported that the drain funds remained on the Solana blockchain, suggesting that the hacker might, might be struggling to cash out. In the past, centralized exchanges like Coinbase, Binance, uh, or Kraken were the only entities with enough liquidity for someone to cash out amounts at this scale. Uh, And in the past, when they've done that, uh, when they've attempted to do that, I should say, uh, those exchanges have blacklisted wallet addresses with stolen funds. I'm very curious because we have Mona Elisa here today to hear what she thinks about this.
0: So let's bring in our guest, Mona Elisa. She's the founder of Enzyme, an on-chain asset management company. She's also the founder and CEO of Avantgarde Finance, which offers DeFi as a service to asset managers. Mona, you've been listening in. What are your thoughts?
2: Um, well, first, it just made me smile when you mentioned BNY Melon, because Enzyme used to be called Melon before <laughs> they launched the <a> great <laughs> That's right. on us a couple of years ago. So we might want to circle back to that um, and, mm. um, and, and talk about that in a little bit. but um in terms of the the hack i think uh, oracle hacks are um probably one of the most common types of hacks that we've seen in defi regardless of the blockchain um in fact in 2020 2021 most of the hacks we saw on ethereum and defi were related to oracle um i would I would take a moment here before we start bashing DeFi on oracle price uh, manipulation, to say that I come from a traditional finance background. I spent 14 years in traditional finance, between Goldman, hedge funds, etc. And uh, price manipulation exists everywhere, not just in DeFi. It's um, largely regulated in traditional finance, um, but I would say I don't think um, most price manipulations are. Are actually like enforced against, or actually recognized by regulators, because it's so hard to prove somebody has done something. Um, and um, and so I don't think this is uh, a problem that is unique to DeFi. Um, but there are certain aspects of DeFi that make pro- oracle price manipulation a little bit easier. And I didn't look into the details of the Solana hack, but one of those uh, one of those uh, aspects is. Liquidity, uh, liquidity on even Ethereum is is pretty low for most, um, but you know, by sort of traditional finance standards, and so, therefore, by definition, it's easier to manipulate the price of something. But I'd imagine that on Solana, it's even less liquid, and so probably uh, easier uh, to manipulate the price of something. So I do find that that is um, uh, 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 a plausible, uh, you know, a plausible outcome. However, you know. The question is, you know, uh, you know, when you're building a protocol, uh, you know, you should be thinking about um, the risk of price manipulation, and how you're going to mitigate that, and or warn against your users that if you're using certain integrations or certain risk and building in uh, uh, protect protective factors. The second thing is. Um, which is which is unique to blockchain is this possibility of flash loans um and and you know flash loans make it possible to borrow a very large amount of capital to manipulate that you might not you most people would never normally have access to um you know manipulate a price uh you know in a way that you can exploit a, a certain protocol and and withdraw funds from that protocol or exploit funds from that that well, protocol and well, then let me
1: let me jump in here mona because you've made some i think very important points and this is going to be a great long-form conversation to unpack some of that by the way sarah will be back at the end with key takeaways after this interview uh to frame that up but two key points that you made there uh first in sort of in reverse order uh you're talking about this notion of essentially derivatives or flash loans being available in a way that they aren't uh, in traditional finance we'll talk about that in a second but i want to talk about your other point uh which I think is an interesting one, the, the notion uh, of the regulation, in the traditional asset space and the traditional security space, this type of activity, quite clearly that we've seen on Mango would be illegal uh, if you were to do it in traditional regulated capital markets. Give us a bit of a frame for where you see uh, the current state of play with regulation in this space and where you believe it needs to be. And then please touch on the point that you made earlier uh, about how derivatives in the space make liquidity more available and facilitate potentially, for bad actors at least, these types of transactions.
2: Yeah, so I think uh, in um, well in traditional finance, it's very easy to. I mean, if you, you know, if you've worked on a trading desk for. Se- I've worked on a trading desk for several year- years. You see odd things happening all the time, especially in closing auctions, especially at the end of a tax year, especially at the end. And it, it's very hard to pinpoint the source or where that came from. And so you do see some headlines of uh, you know, you know, uh, people being done for. Uh, uh um price manipulation but i i i i personally believe that um most of the uh, manipulation that occurs goes um goes without being enforced against because i think there's not enough transparency in traditional finance is not enough efficiency transparency or it's too opaque for regulators to recognize and act fast enough to enforce against so now flipping back to uh DeFi, Um, The advantage we have is everything is transparent and everything is traceable. And if somebody does manipulate a price, you see it already in the narrative on the Coindesk article that you mentioned, you know, immediately people are starting to warn, hey, this address did this within minutes of the hack, right? right? And and, and so let's come together as a community, as a bunch of exchanges, and like stop this person getting away uh, with what they just did. And you can do that so much quicker because you know the address you know the event straight away you know the uh, address of the uh, exploiter and with a few quick phone calls or with you know a a, a process like some kind of emergency process you can work towards um, blocking that address from exploiting those funds further or at least uh, liquidating those funds and so if they can't liquidate the funds and you know, what's the point of uh, exploiting the protocol in the first place other than maybe. But Mona, uh, let's,
1: I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. Look at the price chart here. We're looking at trading at around 40 cents on the dollar and then dropping down to two cents. This is a obviously a, you know, a, a massive, massive blowout uh, drop in the price. And I don't think there's any way that anyone uh, could have sort of facilitated a, a conversation on a discord group fast enough to prevent people from losing money.
2: Oh, no, no, I'm not saying that you could have prevented the loss of money. I'm saying that you can prevent the exploiter from actually converting that money into anything that he can actually spend or actually Mm. price. And so the only reason left to hack a protocol would be... For some pride, but if you're going to have to be anonymous, you don't even get the credit. <laughs> so you're, um, so it just, dif- you know, it just deters people in the first place. But yeah, having said, so, so, that- so the
1: idea here is they won't be able to exit the position. Exactly,
2: you're seeing that more and more. Um, you know, you're seeing uh, the reactivity in DeFi um, become really quick when there's um, uh, what is perceived, what is or is perceived as a, um, a bad actor. Um, you know the community, the, the 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 space is able to freeze them essentially uh, quite quickly. Ironically, much faster than in traditional finance, despite much lower regulation, because the transparency is much much higher.
1: Yeah. So, and this is kind of interesting, and it it brings up kind of my own big picture feelings about the space you know, as somebody who's a, a finance nerd and a tech nerd myself, it's hard not to be excited about DeFi. I mean, there's this uh, there's just a sense here when you look at the ability of, of machines, essentially, to execute these transactions on a straight-through basis without human intervention in a way that's completely transparent, in a way that's completely decentralized. It's just incredibly, incredibly exciting technology. And yet, the other side uh, of my thinking on this is the reality is it is just extremely, extremely early in the space. Uh, we do see the Security exploits. We do see these hacks. We do see price manipulation. You know, how do you reconcile that uh, in terms of your view of the space?
2: I'm going into my seventh year in this space, so it doesn't feel that early to me. But I'm. um, I guess I get. I get your point. I think. um, I think it is early. Um, I think you know we in particular were very early, and I think um, the the only answer. I the best answer I can give you here is that. Um, you know, with time, we've seen projects come and go. uh, And we've seen projects that have come and stayed. And, you know, we're getting now, um, there's a handful of projects in DeFi that have come and now starting to build four or five year track records on chain without any exploits. And I think those will be the winners in the infrastructure play going forward. Um, You know, coming in now is much, much harder because you have to try and build a track record. Um, you're new, you're unproven, you're not battle-tested. Um, right. you know, mu- I think going forward, especially with all the recent hacks and all the recent events that we've seen in the last few months, people um, want reliability. Also, as we go further up the adoption curve, you know, people ask smart let's read the audit report, let's understand the risks. Um, have they ever had a vulnerability? What has the vulnerability been? Uh, and you just didn't really see that in the last bull market. It was like, oh, yield. Okay. I'm in.
1: Right right and and you know this this the flip side of course of risk is return the flip side of return is risk and and so as we we talk about this as i said it's something that i'm incredibly excited and passionate about because the potential is so enormous and then you see these events like this and you know perhaps it's uh it's propitious or uh uh fortuitous that you joined us on this day when we could talk about it but I also wanted to broaden the conversation a little bit uh, to hear a little bit about what you guys are doing at Avant-Garde Finance. Give us a little bit of context, a little bit of background. Why did you spin up the company? What need did you see? And what are you doing there right now?
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, Enzyme is the project that I first um, founded when I came into this space. And it's a project that aimed to decentralize asset management, uh, basically remove the concept of the financial intermediary, i.e., um, you know, use smart contracts, Imagine a future of digital assets and use smart contracts to automate the role of financial intermediaries such that you have much higher efficiency, much lower costs, much higher transparency, and you're able to automate a lot of the processes, uh, painful processes, I should say, and expensive processes that we know of today in asset management, i.e. take the asset management stack today, which is made of the settlement layer, the trading layer, the uh, asset layer, the asset layer, the uh fund administration layer the custody layer uh, and the service layer all of those uh are manual non-automated opaque non-transparent and expensive now take that stack and uh create the same stack for digital assets which is basically replacing the financial intermediary with code which is enforced by smart contracts Um, and that creates a stack which is almost entirely fully automated by code and enforced by blockchain. And I think that's the, the future we got really excited about. We think it right. can, we think it can remove a lot of fat from the system. We think it can bring a lot of transparency to uh, finance, to asset management. And we can, um, and we can also, um, uh, we, you know, the, the missing piece, I guess, is that, uh, you know, if you're you're limited to what's what's a digital asset today. Um, but I guess the big bet that we took and that we're still taking is that more and more assets will become continue to be digitized.
1: Well, you know, you framed it perfectly there, Mona. That really is the vision. That's what people in this space are so passionate about, uh, this idea of, of obviously creating efficiency, reducing costs, and improving uh, the quality and flexibility of services. You know, I worked at a big bank doing some of those back office services. It wasn't yet glamorous enough uh, to call fintech. Uh, but, you know, these these technologies uh, and allowing uh, people to do these things in a decentralized way, obviously, critically important uh, to the success of the space. Let's talk a little bit about what you see as the as the time frame here uh, for when this is going to become something that will be ready for prime time. It doesn't feel like it's there quite yet. Now, I'm reminded of the joke that emerging market economists use about countries. They'll say, you know, country X is the country of the future, and it always will be. Um, Give us a little bit of a sense of where you think we are in terms of this adoption curve, uh, in terms of the ability of DeFi protocols to begin to do some of those things that we now see traditional financial intermediaries like banks doing, uh, but to do it in an industrial strength way uh, that can really be um, much more ready for prime time than what we see today.
2: I think that's a great question. I think uh, that uh, also ties back into a previous question you asked why did we found Avantgarde Finance and what does Avantgarde Finance do? I think um, you know we found We founded Enzyme. We decentralised it in 2019, and then we realised that it's very hard um, to drive things forward and to uh, lead, uh, you know, a, a group of people as a DAO. So uh, we put together a pro- proposal under a new entity. A few of us called Avantgarde Finance, which is still governed. Um, sorry. We put together a new proposal, which was like a roadmap for the enzyme council, and we said we want to be the lead developers. We have a strong vision on where we think this will go. Um, you know and they um, they But um, we also recognize that uh, there needs to be some bridging work, some you know biz dev, some market. it's not all about code, right? We need to think much more um in in a much more kind of uh how do we grow and scale this and how do we um how do we get the user adoption and i think um being able to think about that in a more entrepreneurial way rather than um will help things and also being able to recognize that when the next bull market comes uh and it will come because we've seen this all before um you know we're we we need to make sure that the the pipeline, the pipes, the infrastructure is ready to take on the new. Uh, you know, we're basically at the inflection point on the curve where you know all the all the kind of early adopters have have now participated in DeFi. Uh, all the kind of uh, first users you would expect, and now the next step is institutions and banks and asset managers integrating DeFi into their everyday process. And that's that's just it's not going to happen. Um, as DeFi is today, it's going to right. need people to bridge uh, and make that um, package look attractive and tick all the boxes that institutions will need to tick. And right. it requires education. Um, that's why you know we we couldn't have the more opposite view of you know um, investing in. you know we're not against people using custodians like BNY Mellon, but we also think there's some education required on hey if you can self-custody your own assets internally using software like Gnosis Safe or using software like uh, Credo or Fireblocks, you should do it. Because what's better than, you know, what ultimately is better as an institution, as uh, as a f- family office, as anything, than uh, being in charge, being the owner of your own assets, you know? So that requires education, that requires um, products, uh, finding product market fit, that uh, requires solving um, some of the reporting and compliance issues and standardizing it in a way that that kind of audience is used to. And that's why we formed avantgarde Finance. That's what we focus on right now. In a nutshell, it's bringing right. simplicity and transparency to asset management.
1: It's also going to take this sort of bridge between folks who are crypto-native and uh, other people who have worked in the traditional financial world for, for many years or decades to understand exactly those boxes that need to be ticked, as you said, Mona. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about where we are in terms of the cycle, where we are in the timeline, uh, what you see as being sort of the, the critical benchmarks that need to be met uh, in this sort of longer term progression. I'm reminded of a uh, Conversation I heard at SALT, uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago here in New York. This is Anthony Scaramucci's uh, SkyBridge Conference of Alternative Assets. Uh, traditionally, something that was in the hedge fund space uh, in terms of the guests and the programming, but now has obviously shifted uh, more toward crypto and digital assets. I saw a conversation between uh, Dan Moorhead uh, and, Ra- of course, of Pantera Capital and, and Ralph. Uh, Pal, our, uh, of course, founder, uh, co founder, and CEO, uh, talking about this transition. And, and Dan compared uh, the transition in the digital asset space to the internet itself. And he said, Remember, people talk about the internet uh, being 30 years old. It's not 30 years old, it's actually 50 years old. It just took us 20 years to get to a browser. Where are we now as we think about that cycle, as we think about that adoption curve? Uh, what are the benchmarks that need to be met? Uh, what are the sort of critical red letter uh, sort of non-negotiable things that you think need to be done and where are we on that path to getting there?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, great question. I think security is definitely one of them uh, and also insurability. I think uh, something that you know, we, we haven't quite cracked in DeFi is how to ensure the smart contract risk. That's a question that comes up a lot. Um,
1: and what, well, what does that mean for people who aren't familiar with the space?
2: I, it means that, you know, how do you... So, you're, we're talking about automating an entire industry with smart contract code. What if the code um, doesn't behave as it's supposed to? Innocent mistake, not intentional mistake, um, and causes a loss of funds, and how do you insure against, against that? And, you know, that's, again, something that will take time. You could just argue that, over time, the contracts will be battle-tested and more robust, etc. Um, but, you know, I think... Um, uh, uh, I think people at this stage definitely want to see uh, right. some kind of insurance solution. I and think- this is a
1: fascinating point because the, this... You know, this is the the sort of the first moment where we see this sort of merger of uh, the traditional finance world, the values that people who've worked in banking and finance care about, like reliability, stability, uh, accountability, transparency, all of these things. And on the other Mm -hmm. hand, the ethos of the open source software community uh, and the way that code gets vetted, things like bug bounties, uh, things like code audits, code reviews, these worlds sort of smashing together. One of the challenges, I think, Mona, is very few people uh, in the world have uh, the experience and background at doing both
2: out there right now so um you know insurance companies rely on massive amounts of data to uh to price risk and uh smart contracts in most protocols are still quite young there's just not enough data right. so i think that's a key problem so i think that problem will get resolved over time and as like you said as that educational gap also broadens um uh, but you know we are you know we are getting incoming requests from insurance companies want to be educated you know they're in touch with me they're in touch with my peers they're just they're they do they 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 want to hear what we're doing and how they can help they understand that it's an interesting and big market i think the other thing that um right by the way
1: when i was at, at Masari mainnet i was just literally like having a glass of water sitting at a table and one of the guys who i was talking to and we spoke off record so i can't give you the name of the insurance company he worked for but said listen we have a we have a fintech lab and we're working on blockchain we haven't announced it yet we're not talking about it publicly but this is something that we know that we need to invest in
2: nice well that's great to hear and i'm not surprised Um, and the second thing that i think uh, needs to happen is they need to get comfortable um, with reporting they need to understand how DeFi fits into their reporting systems uh, you know how do they you know it's un it's unrealistic to imagine that a, a hedge fund that invests in us equities and bonds and real estate etc is uh, is going to onboard on you know five new systems in order to hold some crypto positions ideally they want uh, right. they want a they, they want a software that will seamlessly integrate with their accounting system with their tax system, you know, with their uh, reporting system, with their accounts team, with um, everything they need, you know, just seamlessly right. with APIs. So I think that's something that we've been working this And this,
1: with, and this is the about. this is the plumbing that we were talking about with exactly. regard to Google yeah. and also Bank of New York Mellon. Exactly. And that takes time to get built, obviously.
2: Yeah, it does. And um, And I think, yeah, that's the other thing. And then the last piece is... Um, getting people comfortable with with compliance, um, and and that's something that we've invested a lot of time in over the last year year and a half. Um, and we're you know we think that we've probably done more work on that than anyone else in that in this space. And we have a good understanding of what is going to be possible in DeFi asset management, and not um, you know uh, in in the sort of medium future at least.
1: So we've talked a lot about time. You just said medium future there. We talk about the time that this gets required. Uh, Where are we on this cycle right now? How do we put sort of quantitative metrics around this? Is, you know, what's the next step? Is it months away? Is it years away? Is it decades away? How do you think about it?
2: I, I, I honestly think it's months and years away. Um, you know, it's such a large space though, Ash, you know, don't forget, you know, we're talking about one of the largest industries. In the world, um, and it's probably the last industry, the only industry that hasn't yet been disrupted by tech. Um, so we're, you know, we're not we're not working on a trivial task here. But they're they're also um, they're also a very smart bunch of people, and they recognize that there's something here. Um, and uh, and because of that, they're all looking at it and trying to figure out how they want to get involved. And um, I I think that we'll see the more the less bureaucratic, more innovative plays come in first and you know in the kind of the on-chain DeFi world and then I think the rest will the rest will follow you know because they'll have to um, and you yeah. know the thing is like if they don't you know I've heard this from so many people you know bank one of the one of banks biggest biggest problems right now is how to retain their young customers and also how to reti- retain their young employees because they're all wanting to jump ship into DeFi or something else and they're all wanting to invest in whole yes. crypto and, and m- a lot of DeFi gens come from traditional finance, you know? Yeah. Well, so I, I, I think like, you know, as a bank, how do you have, you know, you, they're, they're, previously, you know, their key kind of resource was, was talent and they just can't retain talent and they can't right. retain young clients anymore. Yeah. And so at some point, if they don't just, you know, pivot, you know, that some other more innovative firm will.
1: Yeah, whenever young people in their 20s uh, ask me what it was like to work in a bank and whether or not I'd recommend it, uh, I tell them that working in a bank is one of the best things to have done. You will not have a ton of fun while you're there, but you will learn a lot. Um, talking of learning a lot, Mona, always fantastic to have you with us on the show. You really do bring a depth and of experience uh, and understanding to this that only someone who's in the space and who has the background in traditional finance can bring Always a pleasure to have you here on the show. I also want to bring back into the conversation, Sarah Klein. Sarah, you were listening to that conversation. What were your thoughts?
0: Um, It was a great conversation. So here are my key takeaways from it. Some of the most symbolic moves by major institutions, including Google and BNY Mellon, are happening during the bear market, which signals not only the savvy refrain of building during a bear, but also accumulating. Derivatives and flash loans continue to expose vulnerabilities and it's not just retail investors who are over leveraged in this space. We've learned this year after many a collapse and exploit that even the protocols and VCs that invest in them have collapsed due to over leveraged positions. And third, the transparency of DeFi helps to expedite the intervention of a protocol's hacked funds leaving the system due to the security measures built into the off ramps. So in in many ways, a lot of these hacks aren't actually making it into fiat, but it doesn't necessarily protect the investors from a price crash. So security remains a major talking
2: point in DeFi.
0: Mona, is there anything you'd like to add to that?
2: I think that was a a great sum up. Thanks, Sarah. Of course. Ash, anything you'd like to add?
1: Well, what I would really like to do is bring in Mona for our viewer questions, because I know that we have some questions coming in from the audience right now.
0: Okay, great. So for the final segment of the show, here's some viewer questions. See, Ash, what do we really need central banks for? Aren't they a bizarre touch of planned economy in the midst of our free open market economy?
1: boy this is a great question uh this actually came to me i was just looking at my phone it was a text message one of my buddies sent me uh right before we were about to start the show and i just thought it was so so perfect and something uh that i wanted to get uh mona's insight on as well uh, mona why don't you jump in i'll give my answer after you
2: oh god i don't know i've been wondering that same question for like uh, for i don't know how long um i think yeah i think that one of the one of the funniest. Things uh, that happened. I think um, that Ben Bernanke got the Nobel Prize this week as well. I just, I don't get it. I really don't. I, I, I think they're too short-sighted. I don't know what the point is. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm. I, I think ultimately, I think I believe, and I'm probably skewed by um, a few people's views here, but I think that ultimately, the, the, the. The the, fundament, the belief I have is that it's really hard. Being a central banker is, is really hard. It's not, um, and everyone pretends they know exactly how to do it, but I don't think that um, there is a formula for how to do it properly because we don't have good enough data. We make too many assumptions in uh, our economy, um, and those assumptions are built on assumptions, and then as a result, the data we have is massively flawed and we're trying to right. solve for an equation where all the inputs are just fundamentally wrong and so i don't really you know it's it's kind of it's a bit better than doing this but i don't think it's you know i don't think and then and then otherwise and then the other thing is the incentives you know the you know the the terms of most central bankers are probably are pretty short term um so the you know the incentives are are not really driven for the best you know the best outcome of the of the long run but really for uh the term that they serve so it's a it's a tricky one i wouldn't want to be a central banker i'm um not <laughs> sure i can propose a better alternative though so uh let's give these guys at least some credit for 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 working with what they can what they have
1: yeah mode i think that's very well said there really is a lot of this and then sometimes a lot of mm, mm, <laughs> mm, uh look you know there there is a formula for it you could use something like a taylor rule but precisely as you say mona uh the amount of data uh that we collect and the ability of it to work in the time horizon that actually benefits the economy sort of very questionable i know many of my libertarian friends would be thrilled uh if we did go to a sort of automated mechanistic taylor rule uh type of uh equation for, for for managing monetary policy but i think you know the the real answer to your question is, I think nation states probably feel that it's in their compelling interest uh, to have independent central banks manage these key variables to the economy. Uh, The two things that essentially central bankers are trying to balance out on a regular basis uh, is what we call the dual mandate here in the United States. Technically, in uh, the European Union, in the the Euro area, I should say, under the ECB, uh, it's a single mandate. But both of these sort of views are taken into account on the one hand, uh, you have price stability, uh, more commonly known as inflation or deflation. That's the risk on that side. And the other side, it's about maximizing employment, which is also about maximizing the productive use and growth. Uh, of the U.S. economy. I think the reality is, for the time being at least, uh, we're probably not going to see anything automated. Uh, You know, maybe 100 years from now, our great-grandchildren will laugh at us uh, that we used to do monetary policy uh, by voting in committee. Uh, But uh, for the time being, at least, I think we're going to get the dot plots, we're going to get the conferences, uh, and we're going to get all the kvetching about the results. I think that's probably the most likely case for the next uh, 20 years, let's say.
0: Thank you, Ash. And thank you, Mona. This was so wonderful to have you on the show today. That's it for today. Thank you, guys. Don't forget to subscribe. RV Crypto is free. For those of you watching on YouTube, smash everything. Hit the like button, hit subscribe, hit the bell. Tomorrow, we have Ari Redbird from TRM Labs to give us a big picture update on regulation. Join us at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard. That's 9 a.m. on the West Coast, 5 p.m. London, and midnight in Hong Kong. Live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. See you then.